Well, have you ever felt like you just don't have it within you to do what you're supposed to do? A team in blue and white last night uh, felt that way, unfortunately, and it wasn't the lightning. I was wishing that was the team in blue and white that didn't feel like they had it within them, but um, it was the Leafs. But we're used to that uh, as Leaf fans, aren't we? But maybe, maybe it's something around your house that you want to do. You don't have it within you. You don't either have the money, you don't have the skills, you don't have the time to fix that thing around the house. Maybe, again, it's in sports. Maybe you love baseball, but like every time you swing a bat, you like never hit the ball, and you just don't have it within you. After Jesus' resurrection, he gave them a mission and a task that for sure they did not have it within them to do. You know, there was... Only 120 of them left after the ascension of Jesus. That's less than the amount of people that are sitting here, probably just in this main floor today. And Jesus told them to make disciples of all nations. They didn't have it within them. This morning, we probably feel like that as well. There's things that we don't have the power to do, especially with regards to the task that Jesus has given us to make disciples of all nations. But we're going to look at Acts 2, verses 1 to 13, and what we're going to see is that God has given power to each and every one of his followers to be vitally involved in the task of making disciples of all nations. God has given us the power to follow him, to be changed by him, and to be committed to his mission. And so we're going to look this morning at what happened in this passage. We're going to look at some principles for disciple making, and then we're going to look at what that actually means for us today. So first of all, what happened? If you've got your Bibles, obviously open them up to Acts 2, and you'll see in verse 1, it just says, when they, the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together in one place. So what's the day of Pentecost? We refer to it back as this date that happened um, in, in Acts 2. That if we think of the day of Pentecost, that's what we think of. But what actually did it mean for those that were experiencing it on that day? Pentecost comes from uh, the, the word 50th in Greek, or Penta, which came, because it came 50 days after the Passover. So it was the time when Jews from Jerusalem, but also all over the world, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So Jerusalem would have been crazy. It would have been like, if you've ever been to the CNE on Labor Day weekend, it's just like a crowd of people, and it's, it's kind of madness. So much is going on. It would have been overflowing with people. There would have been markets everywhere, food stands set up. People would have been speaking different languages from all over the world. And verse 5 tells us that there were Jews there present from every nation under heaven. Now where are the disciples? What are they up to? It says they were together all in one place. So again, this is the 120 that was referenced in Acts 1.15 that were waiting. It doesn't say what they were doing at this time other than they were just waiting in this house. The house that they were waiting in was right near the temple courts, as we'll see. So why were they just sitting around waiting? They've been given this mission in Acts 1.8. You know, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what are they doing sitting in the house together? Well, Luke, who also, uh, who wrote the book of Acts, also wrote the gospel of Luke, he, he tells them what they were doing, in, uh, or tells us what they were doing in Luke 24. In verses 49 to 45 to 49, Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection And it says this, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead 
and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses to these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So they're being obedient to what Jesus had said earlier. But it's not easy to wait, is it? We don't like to, to wait. We just like to get on with things. If we've been given a task, we think, oh, we should go and we should do it. It's like when I tell my kids if they have to go to their room, the first thing I want to know is, well, how long do I have to go? Right? They don't just want to wait there indefinitely. They want to know how long. We always want to know if we're told to do something, well, how long am I going to have to do this? Jesus tells them to wait, but he doesn't tell them for how long they're going to have to wait. It's not the main point of this passage, but it is sometimes, or something to take note of. Sometimes God gives us something to do, but he doesn't tell us when it's actually going to happen. And so there's this period of, as faithful followers of Jesus where we have to experience waiting. We don't like it, but this is what the disciples were doing. They knew they had been given this task, but they were told to wait until they got the power from on high. And so that's what we'll see as we go into verses 2 to 4 here. The power arrives, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So in these three verses, we see the Holy Spirit described two ways. First as wind, like a mighty rushing wind, but also as fire. So let's look, look deep or closer at the Spirit as wind. What does that mean, the Spirit as wind? The sound like a mighty rushing wind. What comes to your mind when you think of a rushing wind? Perhaps being on water as the wind comes and blows the, the boat that you're sitting in into a frenzy. Have you ever been caught outside when a real wind comes? You feel like it's almost lifting you off your feet. Or think of wind turbines. You know, perhaps you're driving, I know when you're driving on the 401 towards Windsor, there's many wind turbines on the road. They can generate power ratings ranging from 250 watts, so maybe a couple light bulbs, to 7 megawatts. This means that a, a wind turbine with a capacity of 2.5 to 3 megawatts has enough power to supply 1,500 average households with electricity, a single wind turbine. Wind, it represents power. Jesus uses the analogy of the Spirit also when he's speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again and that the Spirit brings life. Those who are born again are like the wind, being directed by God as God directs the wind. So the wind and the Spirit pr provides power, but also direction to his people. And then also there's a famous story in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel's prophesying to this valley of dry bones. God says to him, Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel responds, Sovereign Lord, surely you know. Then verse 4 of Ezekiel 37. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath 
or wind or spirit enter you, and you will, be, you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So when God says, I will put breath in you, it means I'll put spirit or I'll put wind within you. So wind in the Bible represents power. It represents direction. And it represents bringing life to that which has no life. That is the spirit that came at Pentecost. The spirit is wind. But also the spirit came as fire. Now what is going on with these flaming tongues of fire? You know, Pastor John, when you gave me this passage, maybe this is the reason why you gave it to me, because now I've got to figure out what these flaming tongues of fire mean for everyone here this morning. But what is going on in this passage? Like, sometimes we just read the Bible and just go over these things, but flaming tongues of fire, is this normal? (laughs) No, this is power. This is amazing. We have to ask ourselves, what does God's presence as fire mean elsewhere in the Bible? This will help us understand what's going on here. Fire was a symbol of God's presence In the Old Testament, can you think of anywhere where God appeared as fire to someone? Well, Exodus chapter 3, of course, we know. Moses saw this burning bush, God appearing as his presence, as fire. God was giving a new mission to his people to be brought out out of slavery. And so he appeared as fire to Moses. It demonstrated his presence, but also his power over creation. God's presence as fire was also found later in the book of Exodus, in chapter 19. This was a time where the people of God are, surrounding, are around at the base of Mount Sinai, and the Lord's presence around the base of the mountain is as fire and smoke. In that time, Moses was the mediator between God and his people. At this time, he was giving the Ten Commandments to his people. And God was making a covenant, a new covenant with his people. At that time, it was the new covenant to them. God was doing something new, and he made his greatness known as fire. So fire symbolizes God's presence and his power, and often that he's doing something new. One of the amazing things about Pentecost is that the fire didn't just come on one person or one place, but it says it came on everyone or on all of them. Look at verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. The tongues of fire rested on each of them. God is now dealing directly with his people. There's no longer a mediator. This is because Pentecost... It inaugurates this period of time where Jesus has become our mediator, not Moses. We are moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. When Moses would go up on the mountain, he would do that to intercede on behalf of his people. But in Christ, we have a greater mediator that has come on the mountain. When Christ went to the cross on our behalf, he interceded with his life for ours. Jesus is a better mediator for us because not only did he pray for us before God, but he died in our place. And so at Pentecost, the fire comes on all people, not just Moses, all that are in Christ. And it's not a new law that comes, but it's the gospel, the good news of the gospel. And so the coming of the Spirit as wind and fire, it signifies that God is with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
He has given us power. And we're now in a time where God's power and presence is not just on a few people, a few chosen prophets, priests, and kings, but on all of his people. We are all burning bushes which contain God's presence and are not consumed. It goes on to say that each person here was also filled with the Holy Spirit. This is another interesting one. What does it mean to actually be filled with the Holy Spirit? Wayne Grudem, who serves as professor of theological and biblical studies at Phoenix Seminary, he defines it like this. And I think I might have a slide on the screen, or if not, I'll just read it. But being filled with the Spirit means to be filled with the immediate presence of God to the extent that you are feeling what God himself feels, desiring what God desires, doing what God wants, speaking by God's power, praying and ministering in God's strength, and knowing with the knowledge that God himself gives. And so being filled with the Spirit means we're not living for ourselves anymore. We are fully and truly living for God. We are desiring his purposes for our lives, not our own. We are demonstrating when we are filled with the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In this occasion, in Acts 2, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, and it led them to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Notice in verse 4, it says they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. So two things happen here. They are filled with the Spirit, and they spoke in tongues. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't necessarily mean that we will also be speaking in tongues. There's a few other places in Acts where it speaks of being filled with the Spirit where it doesn't mention tongues. An example of this would be in Acts 13, 52. It says, And the disciples were continually filled with joy and the Spirit. So oftentimes we're filled with the Spirit, and that leads to great joy. Sometimes, as in this case, it led them to be speaking in tongues and other languages. The passage describes the work of God in the lives of the disciples in order to demonstrate the power of God. Whatever is needed for us as we are filled with the Spirit, God will enable us to do. At this time, he allowed his people, his disciples, to speak in other languages as they were filled with the Spirit. At other times, it will look different. But let's go on here in in verse 5 and see the power demonstrated and how some of the people reacted to this. So verses 5 to 8, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound... The multitude came together, and they were, be- they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? So there's people here from all over the world, and the disciples somehow now are preaching to them in their own languages. What's going on here? Aren't these guys just normal guys? Like, they don't know all these languages. How is this happening? How is it that we can understand what they're saying? The response is amazement. They're astonished at this. This would be like, imagine a group of ambassadors come from Japan, and they don't speak a word of English. They come to Queen's Park, start to interact with Premier Doug Ford, and all of a sudden Ford starts speaking Japanese. 
<laughs> this would just be like, we would just be amazed and bewildered. Like, what is going on? Doug Ford speaking Japanese? This was the complete shock and amazement these people as they hear the disciples speaking to them in their own language. Many of them would not have spoken Hebrew or Aramaic. But now they're understanding the gospel spoken in their own language. This action is part of the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 that through Abraham and his descendants, all the families of the world would be blessed. Ever since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, God has been working out a plan to restore people from all over the world back to him. Israel failed at this task to bless the nations that they were, that they were promised. And in their, what happened to them is that they were exiled as a result of that. But now at Pentecost, all the nations are meeting together in Jerusalem And God is giving his people power to speak, to authenticate, to give credence to the message that they are truly representatives and ambassadors of God. And the power is in the gospel and in the Spirit coming through them. And what we see here is a complete reversal of what happened in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. You remember that story in Genesis chapter 11. The people of the earth, they all come together. They're trying to make a great name for themselves. They think they're something. They start to build this tower. God looks down on them. Because of their human pride, because of their arrogance, he judged them by confusing them and giving them different languages so that they wouldn't understand one another. Now at Pentecost, this has exactly been reversed as the nations come to one place and all of a sudden they can understand each other as the gospel is being preached. And ultimately the curse of Babel is reversed because the judgment came down not on the people, but on Jesus. Again, the judgment going on Jesus releases the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we are in Christ and receive his Spirit. And as we move on in the text, now again, we'll see here that there's people from all over the place. And I thank uh, Andrew for reading uh, all of those places that were listed in uh, verses 9 to 11. You know, many of the Jews that were sent into exile, they didn't return They didn't come back to Jerusalem once the temple was rebuilt. They stayed where they were. And again, so when when the Feast of uh, Booths or Pentecost happened, they were just coming into town for like a week just for this like big party. So Jerusalem wouldn't have normally had these people from all over the place. Maybe think of like St. Patrick's Day in Dublin. All of a sudden, everyone who thinks they're Irish is saying, I'm flying back to Dublin and I'm going to have a big party. This is what it's kind of like. This is what's going on in Jerusalem. People are just coming back from their Jewish heritage because it's a big party and excitement in the city. And yet you'll see a map here, I believe, on the the screen. Did I get that one in? Perhaps. If not, then— Oh, there it is. So these are the places that that are listed here just to give you an idea of, of where people were coming from. So Parthians, Medes, and Elamites— they're to, east, to the east of what we know as Iran in modern day. Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia that's modern day Iraq. Judea was where they are. Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia were in and around modern day Turkey. If you move south to northern Africa, Luke mentions Egypt, 
and parts of Libya by belonging to Cyrene, so that's in North Africa. Rome is mentioned as the imperial capital, demonstrating the distance traveled by so many. And it's interesting that it's thought that the people that came from Rome here to Pentecost were the exact people that went back and founded the church in Rome, where Paul wrote the gospel or the epistle of Romans. Both Jews and proselytes, so it's talking about people from Jewish heritage as well as converts to Judaism. And then finally, uh, it's mentioned Cretans and Arabians. Crete being the island in the Mediterranean and Arabians being from modern-day Saudi Arabia. The point of this list is to stress that people were from all over, kind of the known world at the time, coming uh, to be a part of this and to hear what was going on. And what, what happened, and this is what they're saying, and look at verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So the, the gift of tongues wasn't given to the disciples to make them look good, wasn't make them, to make them rich. The gift of tongues was given to declare the mighty works of God. It wasn't for their social or financial advancement. Like much of what we see today in the, in the world as, 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 as preachers try to make themselves rich in the prosperity gospel. No, this was to ma- made to declare the mighty works of God. The last two verses, the response of the power at work in 12 and 13, everyone was amazed and perplexed saying, what does this mean? Others were mocking, saying they're filled with new wine. So the reaction from the crowd is mixed. People are wondering how this is happening. Some believe, some think they're just drunk, and it's early in the morning. This will be a common theme as we make our way through the book of Acts, that the response to the gospel is mixed. Some people will hear it, and because God's Spirit causes regeneration in their hearts, they believe. But for others, they just, in this instance, they say, oh, they're just drunk on wine, even though it's the morning time. In another, in another translation, it says that they're drunk on new wine, meaning the wine's not good. It's, it's stuff that's just been made. They're just drinking it to get drunk. The preaching of the gospel message will always give produce different responses. It did at Pentecost, and it still does today. And this is what we'll see as we go through the rest of the book of Acts. And so that's where our passage this morning leaves off. After this, we see Peter preaches this message, this gospel message that Pastor John referenced two weeks ago when we took communion together. And so what principles can we learn from Acts chapter 2, 1 to 13, about disciple-making? Well, the first one I would share with you is just to say this. God keeps his promises. Let me just assure you and comfort you this morning. God, our God is a God who keeps his promises. As crazy as this whole event sounds in Acts 2, this event shouldn't surprise us because the author of the book of Acts, Luke, he also recorded in Luke 3. He's writing about the ministry of John the Baptist. And in Luke 3, 15 and 16, it says, As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy unto untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This was already told that it was going to happen. A promise was made that Jesus would 
baptize his disciples. He would fill his disciples with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is exactly what we see here in Acts 2. Every single promise that you see in Scripture either has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled. And as far as the disciple-making mission, Jesus has promised, he said in Matthew 24, that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. We can be confident in Jesus' promises that the, the, the message that we are proclaiming as those who are called to make disciples, it will happen. It's just a matter of are we individually going to get on board with it or not? Or are we going to watch it happen? Are we going to be observers as the gospel goes out? Or are we going to be participants? There's not a promise in the Bible that will not be fulfilled. We can trust in God and in his word. So the first thing is that God keeps his promises. The second thing, the Spirit is given to advance the disciple-making mission. This is the reason the Spirit was given, to advance the disciple-making mission. Again, probably the key verse in the whole book of Acts is verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what are you to do with that power? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power, and then you'll be my witnesses. The Spirit was given so that we might witness to Christ, witness Christ to the world. The backdrop, in fact, of the whole entire book of Acts is the church on mission. Chapter 1 sets up the mission. It's a bit of a transition from the Gospel of Luke to the uh, to the rest of the mission of the book of Acts. And then in chapter 2, we see we're given the power for the mission. And then as the rest of the book goes on, from this moment on, it's the church on mission, empowered by the Spirit, proclaiming Christ through the whole known world, through all of the Roman Empire. So the Spirit was given to empower the church on mission. So a question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, is this. If I don't, if I don't sense the work of the Spirit in my life, could that be because I'm actually not on mission? If I'm not experiencing the fullness of the Spirit that God has given me, is it because I'm not on mission? The Spirit was given for mission, so if we're not experiencing the Spirit's power in our life, perhaps it's because we're following Jesus Maybe we've been changed by Jesus, but we're not really on the mission of Jesus. So that's point number two. The Spirit is given to advance the disciple-making mission. Number three, the disciple-making mission is to all nations. The story of the Bible from beginning to end is God redeeming people from all nations of the world. There's no other religion in the world that is so multi-ethnic as Christianity. Christianity is moving towards an end where people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language will be worshiping before the Lord Jesus in eternity. I, I think sometimes people think Christianity is, is kind of a, is dying, right? We, we're, we're in the West. We're in Canada. We just feel like the church was strong, and now it's just kind of trending downwards, isn't it? We kind of feel that somewhere sometimes. 
But Christianity is actually growing at a more rapid pace today worldwide than it ever has before. There are more Christians today than there has ever been in the history of humanity. The church around the world is growing at unprecedented rates in South America, in Africa, and Asia. God is blessing the growth of his church, and in some ways the West is being left behind. We need to be getting back on board with this mission of making disciples of all nations because that is where the end is leading towards. Christianity isn't trending downward. It is, it is going towards a time where people, again, from every single language will worship Christ. We have opportunities here in Hamilton to get involved in, in reaching international students regularly. It's just an amazing opportunity. In the same way, in some ways, that the nations were brought to Jerusalem at Pentecost, the nations are being brought to Hamilton and right now, they're studying at McMaster and at Mohawk and other places in our city. When we have opportunities to invite them over at Easter, at Christmas, for a dinner, I would invite you guys to really consider doing that this year. Such an amazing opportunity we have to be a part of what God's doing among the nations. So the disciple-making mission is to all nations. And then the fourth thing I, principle I think we can learn about disciple-making is that miraculous signs are great, but but they don't convince everyone. Have you ever thought that, you know, if we just did something amazing, like if I just like could levitate and said, God did this, people would believe. Or if I just prayed in the middle of July and told my atheist friend, you know what, I pray that it's going to snow today. And then you would just see it snow and then your atheist friend would just be like, I believe. <laughs> we just, we kind of wish that we could do these like miraculous signs and that just everyone would believe if that happened. But we see these miraculous signs happened here in Acts 2 and some just thought they're drunk on new wine. Jesus himself rose from the dead and the Bible tells us that he appeared to over 500 and still many didn't believe. I believe in miracles I believe that miracles still happen today and that God can and does use them here in Hamilton and in places all around the world. And when we witness these miracles, we should recognize them as such and give glory to God. But we must remember God's words, te God's words teaches us that when the gospel is preached, some will respond and some will not. Pastor John, I think, referenced this verse even earlier in his prayer. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, even if our gospel is veiled, so even if there's a veil over people's eyes, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is real. He's blinding the minds of unbelievers such that even if they saw, see miracles, even if we give them the best explanation for the gospel, they still might not believe because the God of this world has blinded their eyes. So while God can and still does use miraculous things to authenticate the message of the gospel, we need to be convinced moving forward still that the greatest miracle has already occurred. Jesus died. There was no breath in his body. His heart was not pumping. He was dead. And he laid in the grave 
And then the same Spirit that came at Pentecost came into the body of Jesus and breathed new life back into him, such that he was alive again. This is the miracle that we look to as, as Christians. This is the message of the gospel, that Jesus took on our sin, died, and was raised to life, resurrected. This is what we, what we attest to when we speak to others about the gospel. And so miraculous signs are great, and I still believe they happen, but they don't convince everyone. So we shouldn't be waiting and relying on just miraculous signs. So how do we respond now? Just two specific things here. The main idea that we take away from this passage is that the Spirit was given to the church to advance his disciple-making mission. The Spirit was given to his church to advance the disciple-making message. So our response comes right from there. First, disciples are filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes, And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This passage, it shows that when the people saw that they thought that they were drunk, maybe they weren't that far off. <laughs> because the way Paul's talking about being filled with the Spirit, it's like in the same way that wine takes over someone who drinks too much of it. When we are filled with the Spirit, we should look and act differently responding to the Spirit's leading and guiding. So we are commanded as his disciples to be filled with the Spirit. We're not supposed to try to get up in the morning and obey Christ on our own strength, but we, we submit to the Spirit's leading and guiding in our lives. The term being filled with the Spirit here might be better translated or understood be being filled. So it's an ongoing, it's not just a one-time experience of being filled with the Spirit. We are we are, we are to be being filled with the Spirit. So we need a daily surrender to Christ and to his Spirit to lead and guide us and empower us in our walk with Christ. And then the second thing, disciples live on mission. The disciples received the Holy Spirit and imme the immediate response was to proclaim the gospel. This is exactly what the, Peter did in Acts chapter 2. So we live on mission. When we live on mission, it, it won't be easy, but God provides the power. You know, over, over the last year and a half, in my own experience since we lost Jude, there's just been, there's been so many times where I've just not wanted to go on. I don't, I don't, I don't want to go on in mission. I just kind of want to hide out and putter through my Christian life. But that's not what God's called us to, and that's not what he's given his spirit to me to do. And so as there's opportunities to speak, even though I don't really want to, I do. And it's because God's spirit has given an opportunity to proclaim his goodness and his kindness towards us throughout the hardest of things. And he's allowed this tragedy that we've gone to to be used for the proclamation of his goodness and kindness in our, in our city in ways that maybe wouldn't have happened if the tragedy didn't happen. God's spirit has given the power to Vanessa and I to attempt to be faithful during this time. But the same spirit that allows us to have the energy and the 
the wherewithal to speak to CH News or whatever is the same spirit that allows you in your office to share with a non-believer who's open to speaking or to your neighbor as you're cutting the lawn. The spirit is given in measure to what we need for the time we need it. And so whether it's in the hardest of times or whether it's in just the opportunities you have to faithfully live on mission, the Spirit is there to empower you. You're right that you do not have it within you to do it on your own. But the Spirit is given that you might have power to point to Christ and his goodness and his faithfulness in whatever situation you find yourself in. Let's commit ourselves together as a church to be that church that embraces the power that is given to us to live, to follow Jesus, to be changed by Jesus, and to be committed to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that your word teaches us about how you have empowered us by your spirit. We're thankful that you empowered your church at Pentecost, to proclaim your name faithfully. And we're thankful that that same spirit that was alive in the life of Peter and the other disciples is alive and within us today by faith in you. And so empower us now, Spirit, to exalt Jesus wherever we are, whether it's in a few moments in song or as we go out from this place as your disciples, as your witnesses, in our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so empower us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.